Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Reason for Our Hope, and we're going to turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, What God Has Prepared, Part 1. I'm reading Revelation 21, 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What a wonderful passage. What a reminder that no matter what we face in the new year, this is our hope. Let us determine that in the coming year, we will not take our eyes off of the promises of God. Let's keep a keen eye to heaven, our eternal home. Let's never forget that our best days are not behind us. They are most definitely ahead of us. Let us not long for a bygone era or a time in our lives when we were happy. Let us long, indeed, let us strain forward, fixing our eyes on the prize. The prize is definitely not the prize of getting everything we want out of this life. The prize is the city of God that is eternally prepared for us. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick, she was the first woman to swim the English Channel. She decided to take another long swim. This time, she would swim from Catalina Island to the shore of the mainland California coast, which is about a 35-kilometer swim. The waves swell because it's open ocean water. It's not an easy swim. I mean, Kathy and I know that stretch of water well. It was probably the time when both of us encountered seasickness as we had never experienced it before. But on that morning in 1952, the weather was cold and foggy, and Florence could hardly see the boats accompanying her. But she was determined. And after 15 hours in the water, she was exhausted, and she begged to be taken on board. They pulled her out, and she was defeated and emotionally and physically exhausted. But then she noticed something to her astonishment. The coastline of California was about a half a kilometer away. And at the news conference later, she would say, if I had seen the shore, I know I would have made it. And that's my point today. I want to show you where the coastland is so that you'll have all the courage that is needed to carry on, no matter how large the waves might seem at the moment. You know, we've just come through Christmas and have spent some time looking at the first coming of Christ and the, and the salvation that he brought. But today I want us to look at the second coming of Jesus and the promise of heaven. See, I think it's important to speak about heaven often. 
And I think it's imperative to think about heaven often because some of us, well, if we could only see the coastland, well, we would press on, we'd be encouraged, and we'd face a new year with anticipation and joy. You know, as you get older, I don't want you to fixate on retirement or the idea of getting to do all that stuff you never had a chance to do before. Because truth be told, there are people, even Christian people, who never see beyond that. And then if God would so decree matters that for some reason, health or finances or commitments or whatever it is, that retirement isn't that golden time in life to travel and adventure. Now, these very same people become bitter and disillusioned, and they begin to question God. But that's because we've had our eyes on the wrong horizon. We should have been gazing at heaven and the glories to be revealed. We should have fixed our thoughts on those things that we were created for and those things that can't be taken from us. I wonder how many of you have heard it said, you know, Christianity is not just about pie in the sky by and by. Well, you've been told of there are people who are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. And we're told that we should work for a better world here and then heaven is going to take care of itself. Well, contrast that attitude with that of Jonathan Edwards. He wrote, and I quote, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven to which we subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? I remember standing at the bedside of an old and dear friend, and he was dying of cancer. Look, I know my old buddy loved Christ, and he was genuinely saved, but but when I asked him, do you think about heaven? He said, no, I, I actually never do. And to this day, I haven't been able to grasp that answer. See, today and tomorrow, I hope to show you that the only meaningful life, indeed the only kind of person who makes an impact in this life, is the person who has never taken his or her eyes off of heaven. It's the person who can see the shore who keeps on swimming. The person who forgets the shore eventually drowns. The text that we've just read in Revelation comes after the second coming of Jesus. Revelation records the rise of Antichrist and then the rise of lawlessness and the return of the Lord Jesus to set matters right and to claim his own. Then it portrays the great white throne of God's judgment in which books are opened and all those whose name is not found in the book of life are are cast into the lake of fire. And against that dark and foreboding scene comes chapter 21 in which every believer sets their hope. Verse 1 and 2 tells us that God is preparing our eternal home. Look again at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You know, for many believers, this language sounds somehow foreign. If you ask them what's going to happen when Christ returns, they're going to tell you, well, we're going to heaven. And it is this very simplistic view, and it is this simplistic view rather than the biblical view that is often criticized. You see, some Christians think heaven is an endless church service and and doesn't get them overly excited, and others think it's sitting on a cloud playing a harp for eternity, And, and even though those are caricatures of what we think, in real terms, I think a great many people think of a reality, well, that's frankly not as real as our present experience. They think in terms of disembodied existence, in terms of spiritual reality, disconnected from real nature and real sense experience. And so whatever heaven is to them, 
They think God's going to care for them, but they can't relate to it. So let's find out from verse 1 what it says. Notice that there is a new heaven and a new earth, which, in fact, replaced the first heaven and the first earth, for they have passed away. And that's completely in line with what the Bible teaches in other places. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So here we notice that the order of things as we know them will come to an end. In fact, they're going to be burned. Heaven, that is the way in which Peter uses the term, speaks of the planets and the stars or of the vast grandeur of the created order. That's how Peter uses the term the heavens. And according to Peter, the physical universe is eventually going to be laid bare. Now, I sometimes hear Christians when when thinking about the environment and, and the care that we're supposed to give to the environment, I hear sometimes individuals say, well, you know, it's, it's all going to burn anyway. You know, for some, this is licensed to be negligent. It's kind of like driving an old car. It's about to be taken away to the wrecker anyway, and who cares if you plow it into the ditch? So even so, they say, who cares if we destroy this nature? But let's consider this for a moment. What does the Bible mean when it speaks about the passing away of this order? You know, for further light on that, let's listen to Romans 8, 20 to 23. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." So in some way, Paul speaks of the renewal or redemption of the creation in the same breath as he speaks of the renewal or redemption of our bodies. That's something I want us to consider and think about. Both our bodies and the creation are subject to bondage and decay, and both our bodies and the creation groan and wait for their deliverance. As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day through our radio Bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources. While buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly, it's a cost we believe is of high value, as listeners right across Canada in small and large communities are reached with excellent, trustworthy Bible teaching. All of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you. And this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year end strong for the new year ahead. Our goal for December 31st is to raise $376,000 to support our ministry work. Please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In Philippians 3.21, we're told that at the resurrection, the time we go to heaven, 
God is going to transform our bodies to be like the glorious body of Jesus at his resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the relationship between our physical body now and the body that we will receive in eternity is much like the relationship between a seed and the full-grown plant that comes out of it. In other words, there's a connection between the body I now have and the one I'm going to receive. And of course, that's taken from the truth of the raised body of Jesus. Even while his raised body was not subject to weakness, that is, it would never die again, it seems capable of some feats that our present bodies could never accomplish, and yet it was still a very real human body. And so theologians like to talk about the continuity slash discontinuity of our bodies. See, on the one hand, everything is going to be made new, but on the other hand, what's new has a remarkable resemblance to what we presently know. Now, the point what I'm saying is this. When we think of the life to come, we are to think of it in physical terms. Now, some of us think of eternity according to Greek philosophy which argued that the universe was divided into two realms, the earthly, which was temporary, and the spiritual realm, which was eternal. So, so for the Greeks, the body was considered the prison house for the soul so that when you died, your soul is finally released from this physical plane of existence. In other words, anything physical was less important and less lasting than the things that were spiritual. So it's all going to burn, and then the real spiritual stuff begins. And that view leads to a very negative view of creation. Think of how different the biblical view is. God creates the physical universe in the beginning of Genesis, and what does he say? Does he say, well, this is going to have to do for now. This is just temporary until I get the real show on the road. This is not the best, for, for the best is reserved for the spiritual dimension. Now, he says the earth he has made, this is good, and this is very good. He means to say that the physical world that he has made is not a second class, quickly put together temporary structure that he's going to rip down anyway. This was the, the best, finest world he could make. This was an expression of God's true brilliance. Now, we've all heard of builders who build subpar houses. They don't stand back and say, you know, this is very good. Rather, they say, I hope I can get away with this because the inspector, you know, might pass this and I'm going to make some quick cash. But an excellent builder stands back and says, this rightfully reflects my skill level. This is good. And that's what God says at the creation. And when we read through the Bible, we find that God says much about the earth and about the land. You know, initially he puts Adam and Eve into a garden with sights and smells and sounds and physical food and a garden of joy. And what does God say? Well, he says to Adam, exercise dominion over everything that I've made. Rule over it in such a way that will reflect the wisdom and goodness that I've put into you. Everything about this earth and your rulership of it will declare my glory. But of course, as Paul has reminded us in Romans, the creation became subject to bondage and decay because of man's rebellion against the glory of God. A perfect environment became an environment which groaned. This world has become less than perfect, yet it still resembles what it once was. It is paradise lost. You know, the best example I can give of that is of the first European explorers who sailed the St. Lawrence Seaway. 
You know, at that time, fish and wildlife were so abundant that the first explorers simply lowered wicker baskets on rope from the decks of their ships into the water and, and scooped up the fish that was teeming in the seaway. But today, well, it's become a dead waterway. It's only a faint hint of what once was. And that's the picture of this earth. Because of the fall, because of the entrance of sin into this world, even though it's still lovely and it can still thrill the soul, and yet still, it is now but a barren picture of the lush, perfect environment that God had created for the rich and happy enjoyment of the human family. In fact, the Bible picks up that theme as we continue to read. You know, years ago when Kathy and I were on sabbatical, we stood at the top of Mount Pisgah or what has now been renamed Mount Nebu. And up to that point, we had traveled through the Sinai Peninsula and we'd stood at, at the base of Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments are given and we followed the route of the Exodus and we began to understand what Moses was talking about when in Deuteronomy 32 verse 10, he called it that howling waste of a wilderness. It is all of that. It's fiercely hot and in many places, it looks like the surface of the moon without a single bit of vegetation. It's just got rocks and sand and dust. And I was going to complain, but I remembered what happened to the last group that complained there. So I gave my heart into gratefulness. But then on the top of Mount Pisgah, we stood where Moses was buried. And from there, we looked and saw the Jordan. And beyond that, we could see something that, you know, it just almost made me weep. It was the beauty of the promised land. Up to that point in time, I'd, I'd never seen it before. And so I was seeing it as Moses saw it for the very first time, emerging from Sinai, and it was eye-popping green. It's exactly what the Bible calls it. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And did you know, that's a symbol of what God wants to do when he reclaims and renews this groaning earth. You know, the older Christian hymns used to talk about our journey to heaven as if we were traveling from the wilderness of Canaan land. We were going up to the promised land. You see, the land is the theme in the Bible. It's a promise of a glorious physical home with sights and smells and sounds. It's a fruitful land where we can settle down and prosper. It's a prosperous land, a land of our own. It's a land of plenty. Where will we live in eternity? We're going to live on earth, a new earth. It will be the fulfillment of all that this earth only slightly hints at. Let me quote to you from a well-known theologian, Anthony Hokima. He puts it this way. Because of man's fall into sin, a curse was pronounced over this creation. God now sent his son into this world to redeem that creation from the results of sin. The work of Christ, therefore, is not just to save certain individuals not even to save an innumerable throng of blood-bought people. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. That purpose will not be accomplished until God has ushered in the new earth, until paradise lost has become paradise regained. Or listen to John Piper. He said, Christianity is not a platonic religion that regards material things as mere shadows of reality, which will be sloughed off as soon as possible. Not the mere immortality of the soul, but rather the resurrection of the body and the renewal of all creation is the hope of the Christian faith. 
Finally, listen to Bruce Milne, who pastored in Vancouver for many years. He, he said, the Jesus who says, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. This is the Jesus who draws back the curtain on the heavenly life and shows us what it is like embodied. And yet having stated matters that way, I've still missed a most glorious truth. Look again at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You know, the fact that the sea is missing in heaven has caused many Bible teachers to wonder, you know, are the ocean vistas going to be gone in heaven? Now, of course, the book of Revelation is so filled with symbols and pictures of the reality to come that we're sometimes left wondering whether the picture being painted is a symbol or, or should we take it literally? And for that reason, I've often felt it best to say when interpreting the book of Revelation that to the best of my ability, that's how I understand this passage. Well, to the best of my ability, this is how I understand the description of the sea being absent in the new earth. In the ancient world, the sea, to the most part, represented an uncrossable barrier. Most mariners and most shipping in the ancient world was conducted within the sight of land. Now, if I'm right on that matter, I think that we are to understand in Revelation 21 that the uncrossable barrier between heaven and earth has been erased. See, up to now, there's an expanse set between heaven and earth. We can't cross over and come back again. But in the age to come, the barrier between the glories of the eternal throne room of God and the glories of the creation that God has prepared for us will be removed. The sea, the uncrossable barrier, is going to be gone. The holy city will descend from heaven to earth, and God's throne room and the glory of a renewed earth, which is intended as our home. That barrier between those two realities is now forever removed. And that's just the beginning. And so the best days are ahead. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on the shoreline. John, thanks for today. You know, I know you've got a great series on heaven, and these messages are in heaven, and it makes me wonder, why is it you think we find ourselves so naive about the teaching of heaven today? It's a terrible oversight. I mean, I, I can't imagine how, for instance, if pastors aren't thoroughly instructed in the doctrine of heaven, how is it that they can give hope to those who are dying in the faith? I mean, you know, to keep your eyes on the shoreline is very important to the dying. But it's also important to those of us who are feeling quite well at this very moment. It's because nothing on this world will make sense until we keep our eyes on what God has prepared for us. And we can't get our eyes on what God has prepared for us because we don't even have a clue what it's like. So God has given us great revelation scripture. We should always return to it and remind ourselves frequently of the glories of heaven. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Happy New Year from all of us at Back to the Bible Canada. We're praying that the Lord would bless you and your family as we begin 2021. As 2020 comes to an end, we can't help but reflect on our partnership with so many across Canada who have made this Bible teaching ministry possible. We're constantly amazed at the kindness and generosity of so many, young and old, who value this ministry. 
Your support helps people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus, the light of the world, in the pages of the Bible. If you'd like to know more about how you can partner with us this upcoming year, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. May the new year bring you happiness and peace, wishing you a joyous 2021.